Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Back with Joshua Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Welcome back, Josh. Thanks for having me back. Uh, you know, I, I just sit there and there was a pause there as I introduced myself. It's almost, I had to remember who I was. I feels like, I think that's kind of where we're at a little bit. (laughs) So, you know, and where we're at is in the last week running up to election day, election, uh, early voting in person is going on all over Texas. Uh, we're watching that and, and much, much more. So, uh, given that this is our last podcast, unless we do an emergency podcast an emergency, next week, yes, um, before the elect before election day. So I, you know, I thought maybe what we could do is talk a little bit about what we're watching, what people might watch, uh, have people email us and tell us what they are watching. If we, you know, we're, we're inevitably not going to hit everything one might watch. So would be interested in hearing from folks what you know what what you're watching. So. You know, I mean, I, I think the the main kind of daily uh, uh, occurrence here uh, right now for people watching this is kind of watching early voting because, you know, so much of what the campaigns have said has hinged on their turnout efforts, you know, obviously structurally uh, right. for the Beto O'Rourke campaign, not to get buy into the general myth of right. turnout having talked about that with professor Shaw a couple of weeks ago but nonetheless I mean turnout is clearly critical for the O'Rourke campaign to the extent that the Abbott campaign uh, anticipates the O'Rourke campaign trying to drum up turnout then you can expect that the Abbott campaign is also going to make a lot of efforts on turnout um you know I think a couple weeks ago and this is a, a you know terrible scholarly practice I, I think it was on Either in, either in an interview on the radio or on Twitter, the Abbott campaign was projecting that they thought there'd be something like 10 million people turning out. Right. Uh, I, it is looking like much less than that this much, time. Much less than that. And that's been kind of, I think, the unfolding story as we've watched early voting. That early voting, I, you know, I, I don't want to say anemic, but, um, you know, looking kind of average. Yeah, I think average is the word we would use to describe it. But the question is, you know, average how? And and I think one of the things that, you know, I've been saying a lot, we've been kind of talking about a lot is, you know, if you looked at the last two election cycles in Texas, we've seen really high turnout for Texas. Now, relative to the rest of the country, we're still at the bottom of the pack, but we've seen this surge in turnout. And so I think to some extent, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, disappointment is to some extent I think in sort of among those people who are like watching this stuff closely because you're thinking, oh, this is, you know, it sort of almost seems like to make the election interesting, (laughs) you know, we're probably going to need to see more turnout. Whereas as we kind of see this decrease in turnout, our expectation is based on kind of the underlying data that we're going to see like what we would call a normal election, maybe, you know, 2014 levels of kind of turnout, rates of turnout sort of thing. Um, And, you know, 
I mean, that's sort of not surprising in some ways, right? I mean, in the sense that, you know, the last two election cycles have been, you know, really, really high, unusual, high intensity, yeah. high levels of engagement, and especially, you know, high levels of engagement from a lot of Democratic voters who aren't necessarily, you know, as consistent in their voting patterns as Republicans. Yeah, I, you know, and I, we did a post at the website that the listeners can go find that's in the blog section about that combines the early tracking number, the, the early voting numbers and our daily tracking of it, although we have one of those freestanding, but also with like a list of things to consider mm-hmm. as you look back and, and try to gauge where we are in relation to 2018 and 2020 and to read, and as you read uh, coverage of this, I mean, you know, and one of the things in that is that it's very, in that post is that it's you know, a lot of things have changed even in, you know, setting aside turnout right. rates, a lot of things have changed just in how that data are reported. Right. And in the context of uh, uh, new voting laws, right? Uh, the big voting bill that was that was passed into law that changed a lot of the process and is, and, you know, plausibly seems to be having an impact. And I'm not saying that we blame low turnout on that, but certainly the patterns in in male voting and a couple other things right. are tied in part to that and in part to just, you know, dip major changes in context in 2018 and 2020. Yeah. But I think one thing that hasn't changed and one of the reasons that we are focused on early voting is that, you know, as a, as a proportion of the total vote, the early vote has increasingly become the primary way that Texans cast right. their ballots. Now, we saw that trend picking up from 2014 to 2016 to 2018. In 2020, that was the dominant mode of voting during the pandemic because, you know, people wanted to vote early. The counties wanted people to vote early. There's extended right. early voting periods. So, you know, we wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of a snapback in, in 2022. I mean, I've been saying, you know, sort of out of sight of this question, you know, the idea that we're going to see lower than a sort of 2018 level turnout, lower than 2022 turnout is obvious. In terms of the total number of votes, it seems at this point like the only thing that's going to push us up you know, into a, these sort of higher level numbers, 8 million to 10 million people is probably going to be huge election day turnout. Right. Which, again, would be kind of atypical and really against the trend line here in Texas. So really, you do start to have to kind of be focused on where where is the vote happening? Who's showing up? And, you know, all of that kind of points to, to bad signs for Democrats. Right. Because we're, you know, we're, I mean, we are substantially down in, by, in both absolute numbers and share of the electorate. Right. You know, despite, you know, people having made a lot going into this of, you know, an increase in registration that didn't seem to me to be unusually high. Well, and the other thing is, you know, the, the most recent analysis, you know, I think out this morning or yesterday afternoon from Derek Ryan is looking at the voter file and looking at, you know, the nature of of the participants right. the, thus far found that if he looks at the new register and he does great work. And if you don't look at that, you should really sign up for his email because it's worth it. But, you know, he was pointing out that if you look at the new registrants, basically, sort of the, the you know, sort of people who registered since 2020, uh, even there, the proportion of those who participated in a re- Republican primary outpaces the share of those who participated right. in a Democratic primary. So even when you look inside that data, it's not looking like a big registration advantage for Democrat, which even Democrats, which even here wouldn't even be, you know, if you look at the numbers, it wouldn't even be enough really to make a big dent in the gap that Republicans right. usually can generate. Or it would, it would have to be, you know, yeah, well, it'd have to be, yeah, I mean, very large. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was saying, even if they had all of the new registrants, it might not be large enough. And and I think, you know, I, I, and again, I think we have to caveat this with the fact that, you know, in terms of looking at these early voting numbers and then thinking about election day, you know, there, a lot has changed. Obviously the pandemic, right. 
you know, the rules, which some people may or may not be aware of or may or may not be in, uh, impacting habits, but also the discussion of mail-in voting yeah. in since 2020, in 2020 and since then, seems to have really driven, you know, ha- had an impact on mail-in voting, particularly looking at the partisan patterns that, that again, Derek Ryan and, and others have been talking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, the th- you know, this was something people pointed out during uh, the debate over the specific provisions around mail-in voting. You know, if you've been around for a while, you know, historically, mail-in voting has been used more by the Republican Party than the Democratic Party here because of the nature of the mail-in voting law in Texas and the different demographics of the parties, right? So yeah. the easiest way to get access to a mail-in ballot is to be over the age of 65. Right. Well, if you're talking about over 65 voters in Texas... You're talking about a pretty Republican group. Right. Right. And so but ultimately, you know, all of the the questions around mail in ballots, all the new provisions, you know, say the the pretty bumpy rollout of it during the primaries. It's not surprising that, you know, you probably see a significant share of Texans, I'd say Republicans and Democrats saying, you know, maybe I should just cast a ballot in person this time. Right. And definitely, I, as I recall, Derek's earlier reports. You know, you had seen a shift in the in the partisan balance of, of mm-hmm. mail-in voting. The overall total was down, again, expectedly, but the the partisan proportion had shifted, and the a lot fewer Republicans right. uh, using mail-in voting, which sort of, you know, basically underlines this argument. But if you, so if we look at this early voting in terms of thinking about what it's telling us, this, you know, the biggest, most obvious sign that is this is not good for Democrats is that. You know, as you were saying earlier, we know that generally Republicans historically have preferred to vote on Election Day. Yeah. Um, And the proportion uh, as of, I think, through Halloween, through Monday. Mm -hmm. um, So this would be the the report that I think Derek sent out last night. um, You know. People with a with some level of Republican voting uh, primary voting history and no Democratic primary votes at all, forty two percent of of turnout so far. Democratic share similarly constituted between one and four. A history of voting in the last between one and four Democratic primaries with no Republican primary voting record, twenty nine percent. Yep, and. That's been a Republican advantage from the beginning. There were a couple days, I think, in the middle where it looked like it was closing a little bit, right. and then it opened up again after the weekend. So, um, and I'll say, you know, I don't recall. I have to look look back, but my recollection was in, in the closer cycle in 2018. You know, those numbers were not that gap was not as big. It was not. It was not. And I don't. I don't have it right in front of me, but Derek could put that in. I think in the in yeah. the preface to his report, and it was not. So. So as we watch early voting, you know, again, I would say if we're looking for leading indicators, the combination of low turnout and what we're seeing in the partisan balance, near as we can tell, now that's not right. It's not determinative. That's not everybody, the, you yeah. know, and it's not determinative. It's, you know, that's basically a little more than 70% of the vote so far are either Republican or, pri- or, or Democratic primary voters. We'll see. But between the proportions and the low level of turnout, there's no way you can look at this as a Democrat and think this is a good sign. No, I mean, especially given the fact that, you know, I mean, you can look at their own their own statements on this. I mean, I think you know, to the extent that uh, the O'Rourke campaign has been reacting to kind of you know bad polling news in the weeks leading up to the election, the response has been, "We've built the biggest turnout operation, you know, in the history of the you know the galaxy, or whatever people say, right, in the state, right. the, the world, the galaxy." 
And I mean, obviously, some of that is just campaign rhetoric and whatever. We take that as it is. But also, I mean, it it indicates the fact that, you know, the campaign in large part is built on the idea of turning out low propensity, democratic leaning voters. And so far... There's that, nothing in this early data that would indicate that that effort is is, is bearing a lot of fruit. Right, unless they are, you know, aiming at election day turnout, but I've seen no indication. Of well, that. and again, and like, and that would be, and that would be a bad, that would be very poor strategy given yeah. what we know about. Well, again, yeah, you know, the changes in the electoral law that have reduced the number of of polling places in some right. very democratic areas. Yeah, uh, you know, the the regulation of hours, et cetera, it would not be. A wise strategy to do that. I doubt that they have. But I, you would, know, I you want would, to give them the best. It's a logical possibility, would, benefit say, of the doubt. You know, it's almost like bad. It's like, we would we'd almost say it's, it's irra- It would be irrational, right? <laughs> so. uh, you know, at least in the economic sense. Um, right. Now, uh, another sort of indicator that people have looked at, and I think you know, this doesn't tell us a lot, and and there's not a ton of news here, but you know, the 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 eight day reports came out. Uh, mm-hmm. Campaigns had to file them yesterday, November 1st. They came. So people are parsing them today. Uh, Jeff Blaylock at Texas Election Source had done a lot of first round compiling on this, and I'm sure others have. I'm sure, I'm sure Svitek did over at the Tribune. Um, you know, in, in, in this period, O'Rourke, you know, continued to outraise Abbott. And this year, that's been one of the storylines and certainly a storyline promoted very much by Democrats and by anybody with an interest in portraying this race as, as competitive um, by about one point, uh, you know, 1.7 million. So, you know, O'Rourke raised 10 and a half, Abbott raised 8.8. Uh, outspent Abbott by about three and a half million, give or take. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that that Blaylock pointed out is that both candidates have been raising money and spending it. Yep. Right. Um, you know, O'Rourke. You know, out of all of this, you know, enormous amount of money that he raised for this campaign in the calendar year, and he raised, you know, almost sixty-eight million dollars. Uh, O'Rourke has about four and a quarter million dollars on hand. Abbott has a little less than four on hand. Which that's the thing. You're like, whoa. So, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, that's something. Now, I mean, I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see how much of, you know, how, how much of that, of the Abbott money has gone to some of these legislative efforts. Although I think in the year when he's on the ballot, probably not as much as we've seen in the past. And we're going to put a pin in that for later. Um, but I think we also have to remember that if you step back a little bit further, and again, Blaylock makes this point, it's a very good one. Um, you know, over the two-year period, Abbott still raised about $25 million more than uh, than O'Rourke did. And, you know, since the beginning of 2019, after the last race, Abbott has raised, you know, uh, more than $140 million. Right. And, you know, I sort of make a point of this in the, you know, the the Texas politics course that produced online, the, you know, that Abbott's ability to fundraise, to fundraise is really unbel- historic. Yeah, no, it's and, and unmatched. And so, you know, we've said on the podcast, and, you know, and I've said to, to reporters and then to groups, in a lot of ways, you know, it feels as if, you know, Abbott's ability to raise money is to some degree, for all practical purposes, kind of infinite. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, not literally infinite, but it's 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 impossible to for me to imagine that Greg Abbott wakes up in a in a campaign for a statewide office, certainly for the governorship, right. and goes, uh, oh no, how am I going to raise money? 
Yeah. You know, it just doesn't happen, right? No, and I mean, the truth is, is you know, I think in, in many ways, you know, they've learned from previous election cycles that they're not going to, you know, leave a bunch of assets on the table, yeah. you know, for say, for the fact that, you know, if anything doesn't go to plan, then you get the blame if you've got $10 million in your bank account. Right. And, and we've talked about this in here before that I think, you know, the, you know, one of the overall lessons and we, you know, maybe this is the time to talk about this. You know, and well, you've already kind of raised the 2018, 2020. I can't help it. But the dynamic, well, no, no, it's, it's, well, and it's, I, I mean, I think in this context, the point is, you know, one of the things that seems to occur to me is that, you know, as we sort out how singular was 2018, right. you know, we've talked a ton about the dynamic between 2018, 2019 session, 2020, 21 session. Right. But electorally, I think if you look at the arc from, you know, 2018, 2020, 2022, it's that the Republican Party and the consultant class, Mm. certainly writ, you know, writ large, have learned a lesson about complacency. Yeah. And that was kind of the 2018 lesson. Yeah. It got implemented in 2020. It went their way. And I think that lesson is still very front and center. And of course, look, I mentioned the consultant class. You know, if you're the consultant that's, that get a piece of the spending, mm -hmm. not that any this would be anybody's no, main motivation, no, but all things being equal, if you know your client has money in the bank, you're going to urge them to spend it. And I think elected officials and candidates have probably, you know, internalized this lesson from 2018 and 2020 that's being reinforced by consultants. Yeah. And I mean, something that kind of strikes me as we talk about it is, you know, it's, it's, I mean, the thing that kind of stands out if you've been following this for a while is the fact that, like, you know, you'd say Abbott only has you know, a little under $4 million in his account. And part of that is because if you've been following this for so long, I mean, the story is always how much money Abbott has in right. his account. He's got, you know, he's got 20-something million. He's got 30 million. He's got 40 million. And I think one of the interesting things about that is, you know, from a traditional kind of political science standpoint is, you know, you'd say as an incumbent with a humongous war chest, as we call it, that should scare off challengers. It should yeah. share off, scare off other politicians. The thing is, is that, I mean, you combine the two points or, or these two, one point with the other, which is, you know, one, he could probably go back and raise that money again, which right. is, you know, astronomical and amazing just from an outside perspective. But the other side of it also is like, it didn't scare off anybody, right? He had, a, he had a primary, he had, you know, people spending money against yeah. him. It was significant. He has a significant challenger who's also raised a ton of money. So the idea that Abin can just sit there with 20 or $30 million and that in and of itself can do some of the work. Is right. probably that game is probably over. Yeah. And so, given that, it becomes okay. Well, why are you raising this money? Well, you're raising this money to to campaign and win. And so, we're seeing that now. I think, and it's a little bit yeah. of a shift, you know, just in the environment. Well, and that's you know, um, you know, that brings us to maybe one final bit of this before we move on, or you know, thinking about you know what we're looking at. You know, obviously, everybody's reading tea leaves now. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> you know, in terms of this, it's kind of uh, right. Oh, there's you know. This is one example of that. Oh, nope. you know, Governor Abbott's spending all of his money. It must mean, you know, does that mean that they're worried? Are they, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I, I think the broader argument we're talking about is more plausible based on what we're seeing than, right. you know, they feel some imminent, you know, threat, you know, uh, uh, out there. But, you know, there's all these other things that we're watching. There's a big national conversation going on about this, about what, you know, what the, you know, how the campaigns are handling messaging and, mm -hmm. you know, what is now the cliche of the closing arguments. Right. Right. Um, you know, big story in the New York Times yesterday about, 
you know, the early start of, of kind of criticism and discussion of whether, you know, Democrats should be shifting gears as some and, and, and looking yeah. at evidence that some are in the past week, you know, continuing a pivot that I think we've seen for a while away from the tighter focus on, you know, abortion, democracy, um, you what? know, the, the, you know, the Republican Party being out of the mainstream and a little bit more towards an economic argument and trying to, you know, yeah. reposition in the face of what is an obviously disadvantaged environment for mm -hmm. them, given inflation. Right. And so, you know, I, it, it did make me think of what's going on in Texas. And, you know, we were looking at some ads this morning. Right. You know, what is being called, you know, the, the O'Rourke campaign's kind of closing ad where he's just facing the camera. And there's an interesting, like, you know, there's a funny rhetorical trick we see in campaigns before where, you know, he starts by saying, look, I don't think Greg Abbott is purposefully, and then he lists nice. all these terrible things. But the truth of the matter is they haven't done anything to fix it. And then they, you know, they, they use, you know, text on the bottom of the screen to kind of marquee, you know, major points. And the economy doesn't really play a big role in that. Yeah. And it goes to the, you know, but, you know, and I, you know, we were talking about this earlier offline and I think, look, on one hand, again, Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, it's very easy to say, well, why didn't they talk about that more? I think that's one thing you can do nationally for Democrats. Yeah. It's a little harder in Texas, but it's even a little unfair with the Democrats to some degree nationally, maybe in the Senate races, but in, you know, local house races, legislative races, even gubernatorial races. You know, balancing what local conditions look like with this overwhelmingly kind of powerful, national, very easy argument for Republicans to make mm -hmm. that you're noticing higher prices, you're noticing your wages aren't keeping up, and who's running the show? Right. O'Rourke has, want, you know, has wanted to make that argument in Texas um, with a variation on things that are you know, he thinks will mobilize his voters and I guess, you know, ultimately, you know, might make this a referendum on Abbott, which would be the cat, the classic strategy, I, you know, but it's, it's been a hard hill to climb. And I, if I was struck by anything in looking at the final O'Rourke ad, it is that how similar it was to how he opened the campaign absent, you know, with the addition of the, the the development of Dobbs and the abortion decision, which came later. But, you know, the stewardship argument has pretty much been the argument from beginning to end. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing about that is, I mean, you know, but I think the issue is, you know, the stewardship argument has been the argument, but then the question becomes, how do you, you get to making that stewardship evaluation? And, and, the, and the problem seems to be, you know, my mind, at least with, with the approach is, you know, I've kind of said this a couple of different ways, a couple of different times, but, but the Democrats, you know, sort of challenge slash whatever with, with Abbott and their issues said is, you know, is it like, does Abbott go down from death by a thousand cuts or is it, you know, a bunch of blows, but none of them are fatal. And ultimately it kind of looks like the latter. I mean, you look that you're kind of stacking these different yeah. issues up that, you know, I mean, truthfully activate, you know, a lot of your voters who are already going to turn out and vote for you, but also, you know, counter mobilize, you know, a significant share of voters on the other side. I mean, even on these issues where Democrats are in the majority in their issue position in the broader electorate, we're still talking about, you know, like 55% on, 
on their side, and then you start to cut that down. You know, you take right. out all the Democrats, you take out all the people who don't vote, and you're talking about like a couple points in terms of people who may not even be mobilized enough by abortion on its own or right. on its own to turn out. And so, you know, it kind of just seems like it's a heavy lift. And I think that's part of the question here, I think, for Democrats, because even even, you know, in between those two points where they're sort of focused on, you know, sort of the abortion guns, climate democracy sort of issue cluster said right. there was a discussion going on at the very end of the summer that sort of pointed out that, like, you know, Democrats were so tone deaf uh, sort of in the transition point from summer to fall because they were focused on the, the Biden legislative achievements around infrastructure. And they're, saying they're putting all these infrastructure ads out. It turns out, well, you know, if people are paying more for gas and paying more for groceries and you're touting some like road that's going to be built in 10 years because that's yeah. how long it takes. It's like you're missing the boat. And so there was a shift even in between this to, well, let's talk about let's talk about Medicare. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, th I think one let's of the, talk one about of Social the, Security. Yeah. And I think one of the arguments that. You know, the the you know, whatever the backbiters or, you know, the critics are, are saying now is that, you know, from the beginning and there should have been a way, not just in terms of the more recent, you know, legislation they passed, but the infrastructure bill and even going back to COVID relief, yeah, you know, and there's an obvious trap there, right? Yeah. Which I think we talked about last week, which is you're walking into, well, yeah. And that's what caused inflation. Right. Um, but I think that's, you know, you can't, you have to just come up, you know, you just have to deal with that. Right. Right. Um, not that it's easy, but you have to do that and you have to, you know, if only to, to make Republicans work harder for that. I mean, I think one of the things is you can't ignore that problem well, away. Yeah. And that's, right? Well, that's, but see, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the rub, right? You know, I think the Democrats have not made Republicans work hard on the issues that are, especially in Texas, that are mobilizing or animating, let's yeah. just say a very large share of the electorate. And a lot of those are, are Republicans who are never going to vote for Democrats. That's fine. But they're also a large number of independents, large yeah. number of Hispanics, large number of suburban voters who, you know, if you basically who are looking at those issues. who are looking at those issues and that, you know, ultimately, if the Democrat, if it's hard for even, you know, I think Democratic voters to say, what is the Democratic economic message in Texas or what is the Democratic message in Texas on immigration and the border? If Democratic voters don't even know what that is. You, you basically seeded the field and, you know, at that point, you're not making it very hard on Republicans. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah I think, and, and, you, know, you know, I mean, again, it's easy for us to sit here in a oh, studio very, on campus kind of going, hey, but I mean, you know, but there is a, you know, I mean, there's available polling. We've done it. I can't imagine they haven't done it that yeah. says, you know, Greg, Greg Abbott says he's cut your property taxes, you know. That that one hundred twenty five or one hundred fifty dollars that Texans got five years ago is now worth even less, and it wasn't worth that much then. Yeah, and they told us. So why are they bragging about that? So, but that said, I mean, uh, you know, as we step back, I think watching the tactics in these final days, and from what I've seen, um, you know, parallel to these kind of closing arguments, yeah. there's just a slew of negative ads. I mean, there's. Yeah. Well, yeah, nationally, that's going on. Um, you're seeing, you know, the negative ads in Texas are are pretty brutal. Um, seeing a lot of campaign finance violations going on right now as things kind of get near the end. Right. Yeah. And and you know the, you know the Abbott campaign is running or or they're parallel, but I think it's actually the Abbott campaign the ones I've seen are running, you know, pretty strong negative ads against O'Rourke, mm -hmm. um, and they're not. 
you know, I mean, I've been looking at this, you know, kind of reviewing some of this stuff. So this stuff is fresh in my brain, but they're, you know, and they're not just deeply personal attack ads. I mean, they are policy attack ads. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's personal elements in them, obviously, that they're playing on. Right. Um, but they are, you know, and so they are the kind of ads that are likely to help with Republican turnout. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, all right. So let's go for the last, take a few minutes. Just like, what are we watching election day and election night? We were talking earlier, you're kind of watching county returns, which a lot of people are. That's kind of the, yeah. you know, first level, you know, pro tip, right? Yeah. And I mean, part of it is that, you know, you have to, you know, what we're trying to do here for, for dorks like us, we're trying to, you know, understand, you know, in the context of, you know, the the specific uh, circumstances of this given election, how to look at trends and kind of county level turnout and election results, you know, from a broader lens. And so we're interested in what happens in Harris County, which is a county where Democrats have been picking up a lot of votes, but remains, you know, relatively competitive. Tarrant County is another big county, biggest Republican county in the state, uh, but has been trending blue. But also, I mean, all the kind of local politics there are actually pushing in the opposite direction again. So we'll be looking at Tarrant County. You know, Fort Bend is one of the most diverse counties in the states. We're very interested in what happens there. We're in Central Texas, and so we're obviously naturally interested in Central Texas, but I think in particular more so than Travis County, although the Democratic margins there will be interesting. You're really interested in fast, fast, fast-growing Hayes and Williamson counties to the north and south. And then obviously, you know, like everyone else, we're interested in, in what goes on down in the RGV, the Rio Grande Valley, you know. I'm mostly interested in turnout because, as we said, probably ad nauseum on here, very, very small contribution to the overall statewide electorate. But it'll be interesting to see what the margins look like down there, given all the Republican and a lot, and a lot of money, you know, yeah, particularly Republican money pouring into those. And, you know, the see, argument that the Democrats have abandoned them, et cetera, so, someone will be, the national Democrats. I'll tell you this. What, what'll be interest, what I'll be curious about in sort of the few days after the election is when the pe- people come out with the dollar per vote analyses yeah. to see, like, what, what was the dollar per vote in the RGB right. is going to be pretty interesting. And then I think we're also watching, you know, a number of, of specific races too, right? Right. Now, I, I want to go back to the county numbers a little bit, just, you know, I mean, and again, to tie a couple of these points together, um, you know, one of the biggest stories in 2018 in, in Texas was the Democratic sweep yeah. in Harris County, which put County Judge uh, Lena Hidalgo in, in, in to that, into her that seat. Um, that is a hotly contested race right yeah. now. She's had a very rough ride in that in that job. Yeah. particularly in the last couple of years, you know, and again, looking at the county levels that, that, um, that, that Derek Ryan put out, uh, you know, Democratic and Republican early vote, looking at those, those primary voters is basically about even, yep. you know, 36.6% for Republicans, 36% Democrat are Democratic voters. You know, that is not that again, not good news in a Democratic stronghold. For O'Rourke, or I would say for any of those candidates, um, you know, and then the other one that, that I think Derek pointed out in his in the email to his report that I think was was very interesting, um, and you just mentioned Tarrant, you know, one of the big stories also in Texas has been Fort Worth, Tarrant County becoming much more Democratic, uh, Republican hegemony there being, you know, strongly challenged by Democrats right now. Uh, the Republican primary, you know, the vote history, you know, the, the, the share that is Republican primary voters uh, is about 12 points higher than the share that is Democratic primary. I, I'm voters. really, you know, I think when we come back and look what, what went up, what went on up around, you know, Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth right. area, 
it's going to be really interesting to see whether, you know, we think there might have been an impact from all kind of the school board action that's been going on up there. Right. Because that's been really used to mobilize Republican voters into the process. It's like, I mean, it will see. Right. We'll see. You know, it's one of those, I don't want to say, is it working? I don't know. But that's one of the things I think, you know, if, we, if we're thinking about what has shifted in addition to this, all of the national environment and everything else, they'll be curious to see what the turnout and the drop off looks like and some right. of those kinds of things. And, and, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, specific races. Right. I mean, and, but, you know, we're talking about, and we were talking about the Dallas area a little bit. Um, you know, two of the races that people have been watching there were the races that have been close in the last couple cycles. Right. So 108, the incumbent is more, and they're both Republican seats. 108, the Morgan Meyer seat. 112, Angie Chen Button. These were both like races that were decided in the hundreds of, of, yeah, there, there were of votes, and you know, by a few hundred votes. I think the Chen Button race, was like a couple hundred. Yeah, this and even in redistricting, both seats are redistricted to be under plus one Republican. And, yeah, and part of it is, I mean, I would say, you know, just there's only so much you can do up there. Well, the thing, I mean, the Dallas area probably saw some of the most uh, creative redistricting, right? In a lot of ways, so that's the other kind of piece. Just generally, kind of see what goes on up up in Dallas, you know, as it relates to kind of how that was all redistricted and what happened. But those are two very obviously close potential seats. Right. That's one of those things, too, where you're kind of looking at those seats, not because I necessarily think that either of those candidates are going to lose. But if it looks like if the, if the vote totals start coming in and you see those two looking comfortable. Right. That's, that's a, going to tell you something about other races. Probably you wouldn't uh, expect yeah. a lot of Democratic pickups if, you know, they don't already have a cushion and that they're losing in these kind of closer seats. Right. I mean, these are races where, you know, I mean, even when the early vote comes in or when, the you know, they count the mail-in ballots and that's the first thing they yeah. kind of roll out, you know, that's not going to be, tell you know, that's not going to be determinative, but it's going to be an interesting thing to look at. You know, of course, the, you know, in the Senate, you know, the only real race, the Lucio, the, the seat vacated by uh, Lucio. Uh, Lucio the Elder. Right. Um, you know, between, you know, Morgan Lamontia and Adam Inahosa, you know, that's a 3.6 Democratic seat, but, I, you know, people have a real eye on that. Yep. I mean, that should be given the position of and, you know, the, the prominence of the Lamontia family in Democratic politics in that district, in that region. Um, but, I, you know, all indications are that race is close yeah. and that there is a little bit of Democratic grumbling and pushback, of course. You can say that about almost everything. Well, I think, I mean, the other thing is, you know, when you're looking at these districts, like that SD27, and then, you know, there's another sort of, we're looking at HD74, Eddie Morales, right. uh, is a plus 4.8 Democratic seat. These are the seats where you said, look, these are, these are, these are quote unquote Democratic seats. But if this is a Republican election year, you know, is four point, is a 4.8 cushion from the 2020 vote enough? Right. And that's kind of, again, one of these things we'll be looking at, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, money-wise, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't looked in the latest report. Um, Lamontia had an advantage in that, but not as much as I would have thought, at least the last time I saw, but we'll see what the most recent reports. You know, a couple others, you know, slightly more sleepers, although yeah. I think they've kind of moved onto the radar in the last few weeks as I talk to people and, and kind of get a sense of these things a little bit. Uh, HD-118, which is that very interesting... It's all it's it's perpetually interesting district. South Bear County, mm -hmm. although it also, you know, it's not the bulk of the geography is in South Bear, but it's an it's one of those districts that's drawn around the outskirts of urban San Antonio, mm -hmm. then comes up around on the north end with a you know, a skinny kind of hooked finger yeah. that gets that kind of more rural area kind of outside, you know, on the outskirts of San Antonio and then between 
you know, basically, you know, sort of, it picks up a little bit of, I think, shirts in that area up there. Exactly how you'd imagine a perfect representative Right, system. you know, I mean, it's, a good, it's a good gerrymandering, you know, <laughs> example. And that district has been drawn that way for a while. That wasn't drawn, you know, I was thinking that maybe they had really altered that district yeah. and they changed it and they, they cut out some of the South San Antonio, more urban districts and added a little more of those yeah. non-urban, suburban, exurban areas on the north. And that's where the incumbent is John Lujan, but he's an incumbent. He's been, This is twice he's been an incumbent, but then had to run and, and uh, to keep the seat after winning it in a special election. Mm-hmm. He's the incumbent. He's faced by Frank Ramirez, who he's, he ran against in the special election. And, you know, this is a narrow Biden district. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's like, you know, 50.6, you know, about 48. Um, but this is one of those things exactly what you're talking about, that if we start seeing, you know, a big Republican tide, yeah. a lot and, the, and a lot of money has been poured into this race. But this is one of those, for those listening, it's a very interesting district. I mean, I love the history of this district. Lujan wins in a, in a special election after Leo Pacheco resigns in, in 2021. Lujan had won a special uh, election in 2016, then lost it to Pacheco in the general. Um, and the way that it's redrawn does shave 11 points off of the previous district advantage. If you look at the yeah. Trump, if you look at the Trump uh, uh, Biden district, so that's a that's going to be a very interesting one to watch. It's a bellwether is too strong a word, but it's you know it's a pretty good plug of the watermelon. Yeah, there we go. There, that's perfect. Um, <laughs> I was going to talk about where I learned that saying, and I'm not going (laughs) to. HD, but it's an unlikely source, but nobody would know who it was. Uh, And then there's HD70, which is in southwest Collin County. Uh, Another one that I think on the surface, this is a plus 11 district, but this is the former Sanford seat. Um, uh, Scott Sanford resigned his seat. Or uh, he retired. I guess he's just not running for re-election is what it is. and there's a Republican that I think has been getting a lot of love from the leadership, particularly the speakers, uh, uh, Speaker of the House's campaign efforts, Jamie Jolly, and she's been making a real run at that seat, opposed by Mahalia Plesso, the Democrat. Um, you know, and I think what happened is this was a plus 17 district. Right. And this this is a good for, you know, this is a good teaching t- moment yeah. where, you know, when you've, you're in a tight area and you're trying to redraw districts and and uh, uh, advantage your incumbents. When somebody resigns from a Republican district, it's kind of available for carving. Yeah. And so, you know, this went from a plus 17 Trump to a plus 11 Biden. So all all the adjacent Republican district representatives said, oh, yeah, I'll take a piece of that. And and, and that, you know, and that is one of these, you know, one of the seats that would be on this list and that we'd have a lot more interest in, which is the Leach district, Um, which we now leach very close. But that that district is now much much, much more Republican yeah. and provides much more of a buffer for Chairman Leach. Um, but nonetheless, it's an open, I, I think, you know, Republicans still see this as an open seat. So why not, put yeah, some, why not you know, they field a good candidate. Let's put some money into it, roll the yeah. dice, see what well, happens. And, and they've been active and, you know, very active in Collin County for a long time. Exactly. So why not? So, and then, of course, we're watching Austin, right? I mean, as you said, I think you mentioned that, the, you know, where we've got yeah. a mayor's race that's, you know, interesting to Texas legislative people. We've got two legislators. It's probably interesting to a fair number of people who listen to this podcast. Yeah, right. You know, where you've got a former state senator and former mayor, uh, uh, former dean of the hobby school, um, uh, Kirk Watson, um, 
running against Celia uh, Israel. Celia Israel, uh, former state legislator, pretty much resigned to, to run this race. Um, you know, of course, people in Austin, you know, in the way that we're Austinites, you know, likely to see this as, you know, very representative of the different factions inside the Democratic Party and, and culturally in Austin. I think one can go a little too far with that, but there's something to that. So that race getting a lot of, getting a lot of, uh, a lot of attention. And then we've got, you know, some city council races that are happening after the redistricting that you single-handedly did. Oh, single-handedly is a strong <laughs> word. I had a, I was just one member on a very illustrious commission who people did a lot more work than me. You probably. were a good soldier. I tried, but, uh, yeah, no, we have five of, uh, the 10 council members are up for, for election or, or up, up for re-election or election. Most of them are open actually. Uh, you know, so that'll be and a lot and multiple candidates in a lot of those. Yeah. Races. Multiple candidates. going to be a lot of runoffs. I mean, it's going to be, it's just going to be interesting to see what happens given, you know, I just think, you know, in the city, like all the cities in Texas facing, you know, serious housing, transportation, right. cost of living issues. So it's obviously interesting races. You, know, you already mentioned the Harris County judge race will be following, you know, yeah. pretty closely to see what goes on there. And then obviously, you know, we're f following the congressional races that most people are following. You know, we're watching, you know, CD28, want right. to see whether Henry Cuellar is going to hold off Cassie Garcia. It's a plus seven Democratic district as drawn. But Cuellar is, you know, both seen his advantage in that district decline over time. Uh, in terms of the actual vote, and then obviously this has been a pretty tough election cycle for him. And, and 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 you know she's you know his opponent in this race is not lacking in funds. No, I mean this is another fundraising that has been pretty. Well, I mean there was this little thing where people said, well, you know, if Cuellar ends up getting the nomination of the Democrats, the Republicans are going to go easy on him. And I just said, yeah, yeah no, that's not right. Yeah, and no. obviously that was ridiculous. So CD thirty four, you know, we're looking at again. You know, Gonzalez should yeah. be safe in a district construct to be plus fifteen Democratic, but you know, people are paying a lot of attention to this. This is the district that Vincente Gonzalez jumped from CD fifteen to go run in. Uh, it's a safer Democratic district, but I mean, there's, I mean, talk about negative ads. Yeah, there's been a lot of of nasty stuff going. And on. you know, one of those situations where he's, you know, he's running against, you know, uh, an incumbent who won a special election. Yep. Uh, and, and somebody who has, you know, gotten a lot of media attention and is a good candidate. Yeah. I mean, she's, a, know, she's, a, she's, she's, Flores is, you know, is, is yeah. doing some work here. I would be shocked if we don't see her again, whether or not she holds onto that seat, the way that she's been running kind of that campaign and kind of stepping into that role here in Texas. But yeah. We'll I mean, you know, of all these districts in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, the Cuellar district is inherently interesting because of Henry Cuellar's sort of unique position in the party in Texas, yeah. et cetera. And, you know, old hand in Texas politics uh 34 i think you know is one of those things where if you start seeing that district really cl close or the republican yeah. winning that race and is returns come in yeah you know the neil young signs look out and there's a white boat coming up the river because right. it's it's going to get ugly i think if, if we see that there and then the closest is cd15 right right and that's a uh, you know also a race where you know a lot of money has been poured into that it's uh redistricted from a 1.9 Democratic district to a 2.0 Republican. So not a, you know, you know, not a shoe in by any, but this is, you know, this is the, I think this is the one of the districts where the Democrat, yeah, exactly. the National Democratic pulled out, party pulled out, which is not, not a, talk about reading tea leaves, Yeah, that's, you know, not a great sign for what people were seeing in the fundamentals there. And, you know, again, I think it's fair to think about that rippling through, you know, the other open seat in 34. Yeah. 
You know, I, I think one last thing I'll mention before we get out, and we've run long, but so it goes. Is, is the election ran long, my friend? Yeah, like, what been, are we this has been going to, on for a long time. What are we supposed um, to do? You know, one of the interesting things, and again, this is the bee in the bonnet from last week, but I think to some degree, <laughs> continuation, that bee's still buzzing. One of the things that was very interesting that, that uh, again, Jeff Blaylock uh, pulled out of the numbers in his early summary in Texas Election Source was how much or how how much the amount being spent on house races, has, that is state house races, has decreased. Yeah. Um, you know, in 2020, House Republican candidates at this point had raised a little over $27 million, uh, and had spent, you know, almost 12 in their, you know, in their final eight-day report. This year, you know, way less, raised 10.8 and spent 4.2. So, you know, about a 60 and 64%, you know, respective decrease for the two parties, um, you know, for the Republicans, Republicans for the Republican spending. Yeah, for the for the final spending, you know, overall, you know, money raised and spent way down also, um, more in the neighborhood of 80%. Uh, the Redistricting Committee did a good job this year, and we were— <laughs> Right. I was going to say, just to be clear, yeah. so, so, so spending—so both money raised and spending among Republicans is down about 60%, give or take, right. between 2020 and 2022. And among Democrats, it's down— Almost oh, eighty go, yeah. percent, uh, and again, those declines are even crazier. We're saying, you know, if Republicans only raised ten point eight this year and spent four point two. Democrats this year only raised two point nine and spent two point five. Right. Thanks for cleaning that up. So yeah, just to... just to be clear, yeah, exactly. So to your point, you say like, right. did redistricting work? It looks like it certainly yeah. had at least some and of the one intended of the, You know, effects. one of the things that we had, you know, we've said all along was that the, you know this was not just a ambitious redistricting year for Republicans. I mean, it was less ambitious than it was last round, but it really protected incumbents. And Democrats I think and Republicans. Democrats and Republicans, right. And and this is a real indication of that. And uh, so you take that, you take last week's bee in the bonnet that, you know. A third. This is, you know, part of this is that, you know, a third of a third of the seats are off the table. Right. So you could say <laughs> we should see a 30 percent decline just right, right so, off the bat, maybe. <laughs> exactly. That's a good way of putting it. So we had a 30 percent decline if we had just thought about the seats off the table. That's not quite no, right. No, because, because there were seats off the table. There were last a lot time. of seats off the table last yeah. time. But nonetheless, math, you know, right. we've seen an, you know, main point end with whatever happens in this election year at the state level in legislative races, we've seen a unbelievable decrease in political competition. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, that is just not a, a sign of good health, I would say. On that, thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks to our, our excellent production team in the Dev Studio uh, in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Remember, you can find all the data that we referenced today, much, much more at the Texas Politics website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So thank you for listening again, and we'll be back soon with another second reading podcast after the election. The second reading podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 